What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Laura Delano. Laura Delano is a psychiatric survivor and activist, and she's diagnosed with bipolar at age 14 and has taken medications for more than 10 years. For the past two years, she has been uh, medication-free. She is a peer specialist working in a mental health agency in Massachusetts, and she's also a blogger on the website madinamerica.com which is published by Robert Whitaker. So we're going to be speaking about medications and coming off medications. Thank you for joining me on Madness Radio, Laura Delano. Hey, Will. It's great to be here. I'm really happy to have you on the show, Laura. I've been really impressed by your work, and I really want to encourage people to check out your uh, blog, um, your blog posts at the madinamerica.com website. And you're basically telling your whole story. And this is part of a larger writing project that you're doing, telling, talking about your experiences with the psychiatric system. I've only written my stories up through 2010 before I actually even began to come off of psychiatric drugs. Life has gotten busy, which is definitely nothing I'm complaining about. So I haven't been able to write as often. But I do plan to expand the blog into a, a bigger writing project that, you know, it's in its early stages. I felt compelled to share my story because I don't think it's unique by any means. I just I just think it's the more we can speak out about surviving these experiences, the more hope it will inspire and other and other people to do the same. Well, I want to really focus um, in this interview on your experiences with coming off and your whole recovery process and how you moved out of psychiatric care out of after being uh, diagnosed and being part of, you were taking medications for more than 10 years, it sounds like. Yeah, I was first medicated uh, at age 14, and it was such a profound existential insult is how I kind of talk about it or think about it. An existential insult. I wrote that somewhere. I can't remember where, but it's really what it felt like. The first time I was diagnosed, it just, you know, I was having a tough enough time as that was. And then to have that label, the label bipolar disorder put on me, it just, I felt so alone. I felt completely separated from all of humanity. And then when they told me I needed to take, uh, initially I was put on Depakote and Prozac. I was angry and I basically said, screw you. Um, so I, I didn't take those medications regularly at all through high school. I, I think there were even times where I wasn't even seeing a, a psychiatrist. But at age 18, I finally was in, a, in so much emotional pain. And I, was, I felt so lost in my life that I, I guess I gave up. And I said, I must be bipolar. You know, they must have been right. And that's at age 18. That's when I, I started taking medications regularly and took them consistently until mm-hmm. almost age 28. And so how did this start? What was going on at age 14 that the doctors would say, oh, you're a bipolar teenager? I was having a lot of intense anger and, and rage. You know, the way I make sense of it now is <laughs> I was hitting puberty and I was really confused about a lot of things. And I didn't have a good relationship to my emotions as it was. I'd always tried to push emotions that I found uncomfortable. I'd always try to push them down. And I think it just got to a boiling point, basically, in 
And so I, I had a lot of anger and rage, especially at home. You know, people at school didn't see it, but my family really saw it. And when I was brought to um, a psychiatrist, they told me that the anger was a sign of mania and that I had this bipolar disorder. And I just was shocked and angered and I felt like it felt horrible. It felt really horrible. Did they ask you what you were angry about or what was going on or it was just immediately seen as a symptom of this of this disorder? I can't remember the exact timeline, but it was definitely in the very initial stages of seeing a psychiatrist that I was diagnosed. But I always remember targeting my anger at basically everything around me, like my family, my school, my town. You know, now I realize that I, I really, it was just all in my own internal stuff. But I think that's kind of the way I talked about it with doctors. But it just, it felt so uncontrollable, the, the anger that I, that I experienced. And I think that's why they said, you know, this is more than typical teenage angst. Because, because it felt like, I felt like I was possessed. You know, I felt like kind of a Jekyll and Hyde. And so they said, okay, this is a sign of mania. This is bipolar disorder. And looking back on it, what do you think was going on? What do you think would have helped you? What should they have done at that point? People ask me that question a lot. And it's it's so hard to say. I mean, from where I stand today, I think if anything was going to have helped me at that time, it would have been talking to someone who'd been through a similar experience. I, I don't think I was open to really listening to my family's concerns, to the doctor's concerns, my school's concerns. Anytime anyone showed any concern, it made me feel worse because I felt like everything was kind of being put on me. Even if it, even if it wasn't, that was the way I, I perceived it. But, you know, I definitely think that, you know, I'm really, I always say this, I'm grateful that it happened. You know, I look back and I don't think it, I would have wanted it to have gone any differently uh, because of the way my life has unfolded in, in recent years. But it's a hard question because I don't know even if I would have listened to someone who had said, oh, my God, a few years ago I was going through the same thing and I just hung tight and it passed. Like I might have said, I don't, I don't believe you or why should I trust you? But I think what my psychiatrist and any other psychiatrist I saw in all of those years never did was say what you're going through might be just an episodic period in your life that you'll move through and come out on the other side of. I just was always told this is chronic. You will have this for the rest of your life. So like you said before, well, maybe this is just part of puberty and part of being a 14-year-old. I mean, there's a lot of really angry 14-year-olds out there and they, and they get they get through it. And so maybe just accepting that as part of who you were rather than saying, okay, you know, you've got to take this medication. But you were very resistant to the medication at age 14 and you didn't really take it consistently. No, I didn't. I think I'd take it here and there, but I have, I used to hide it in little, you know, boxes in my closet or I'd, I'd throw it down the sink. I, I definitely did not take it regularly. Do you think if you had taken the medication consistently, it would have been a good thing? I'm so glad that I did not take the medication consistently during those years because those were some of my most formative years, you know, phys physically and, and psychologically and emotionally being a teenager, um, I think definitely think it's safe to say that those medications, had I taken them regularly, would have just propelled me further and further downward in a faster way. I mean, maybe when people say uh, medications help, the word help is such an interesting one because what does that really mean? You know, may maybe my emotions would have been dulled and numbed, but is that really helping? Or is, I mean, to me, I see that as not 
helping. And I didn't, I did for many years think that that was helpful because I felt so uncomfortable with my feelings that I'd rather not feel them at all. But I don't see that as help in any way. So this, uh, this irrational rage may have actually really protected you because it, it led you to not just be compliant and take medications at this incredibly vulnerable age of being a teenager when, you know, maybe it would have actually made things worse in the long run now based on the things that you've learned about medications. Definitely, yeah. My, my defiance was an asset. At, looking back now, it was definitely one of my biggest assets. It was also what got me into the psychiatrist's office in the first place, but it, it was an asset for sure, self-preservation. Yeah, usually strong emotions are there for a reason, and what the first thing you ought to do is find out why they're there and what's going on. And so, then, so it sounds like for four years you didn't take the medications. You were really against that. And then something happened when you were 18. Things just started to get to get too much and then you decided to go ahead and say well yeah okay I, I believe you I am bipolar is that what happened it was my freshman year in college and I felt so lost in my life you know having a lot of thoughts of suicide of just not being alive anymore of I was feeling completely separated from all other people I felt misunderstood I felt you know and and worst of all I didn't even understand myself and so I gave my first semester of the school year a shot. You know, luckily I was able to do okay academically and everything, but just inside I was, things were getting darker and darker. And so after I came back from the winter vacation, um, or it was on the winter vacation that I kind of had this realization that something is seriously wrong with me. That This is how I thought about it at the time. Mm -hmm. Something is seriously wrong with me and I have tried everything to get better and it's not working. It must be... It, it must be something medical. There must be something biologically wrong with me. And that's when I finally said, yep, I, I need to go to a psychiatrist. I, I need to, they must have been right all along. You know, I must be bipolar. And and mm -hmm. I got an appointment. Um, I was. They referred me to a doctor up in uh, Belmont, Massachusetts, near where I was at school. And in our first session, I was put right on medications mm -hmm. and... And that was the beginning of my strong relationship to psychiatry that I had all those years. And what you said is such a common experience. People reach this point of desperation and they say, I've tried everything. They must be right. It must be a medical problem. I think I, I do need to see myself as bipolar. I do need to see myself as someone who needs medications. This is a biological issue. What would you say to yourself now if you could go back in time to that 18-year-old Laura when she's facing that desperation and she's right at the point of saying, yes, I do need these medications. Yes, I do need to see myself as bipolar. What would you say to yourself? I would, I would definitely say to myself, you're a human being just like every other human being around you. You're, no, you're not abnormal. You're not broken. You're not dysfunctional. You're not diseased. Mm -hmm. You're feeling emotions, which are human things, and you're feeling them in intense ways. Kind of like you said a few minutes ago, Will, like there's a reason you're feeling these feelings and just... Why don't you take some time to, to find people you can trust, you can turn to, to help you figure out why you're feeling this way? Mm -hmm. Because the answer does not lie in this bottle of pills that you're about to be handed. It's, it's going to take you even further from yourself. And um, if you just hang tight and keep asking for help from, from friends and family you trust, you will get through this. And you are not broken forever by any means. You're not even broken in this moment. So, Laura, you didn't get that advice, and you really felt like the only 
place to turn was to medications and, and a diagnosis of bipolar. So what happened when you when you took that decision and went that path? Right after that first appointment with, with the new psychiatrist, I actually felt some incredibly powerful, beautiful, positive feelings. And it, w- it felt amazing because I hadn't felt those things in such a long time. I felt a sense of hope, felt a sense of faith. I felt optimistic. I, I actually have a, like a very powerful memory of my heart just pounding with exhilaration. And I, re- I remember the walk back to the bus stop after leaving the hospital where my psychiatrist, you know, where his office was. I really was, I truly believed that everything was going to be okay and that they were going to fix me. And that's how I thought about it in my head. I, they are going to fix me. I am going to be okay. I don't remember how long that sense of hope lasted because for the next next nine and a half years, my life went continually, went darker, deeper, further down. <laughs> Basically, I just kept telling myself day after day, month after month, year after year, that eventually they will fix me. You know, they just must not have the right medication regimen right now. I must not be in enough therapy. I must be, you know, I just, there, I had all these excuses that I was blaming myself for basically and but I kept holding out this this false hope that they will fix me eventually and it never happened and you know as as the years went on more medications would be added you know I I was on like five medications at a time and really high dosages you know at certain points I had a really you know I was chronically suicidal and the suicidality got worse and worse and felt it felt less, you know, before I went on medications, you know, in that freshman fall of college, I thought about suicide a lot, but it was much more, I had a, I had agency over those thoughts and I could choose when I thought about it and when I didn't. And as the years went on, I just, I stopped feeling like I was thinking those thoughts on my own. They started to feel very invasive and they felt normal. Like they became my, it became my normal to think about dying. I lived through my 20s kind of assuming that I'd never make it past 30. I just had this sense that I wasn't going to make it. And even though I kept going back week after week into therapy, getting new medications, like thinking that maybe they'll do it. What I, when I look back now, I just realized that I had no, I had no faith in myself. I, I was convinced that, that I had absolutely no power to change myself, to get myself on a path out of it. I just, I, I lost all hope. What were the medications that you were, you were taking? I, I've been on, I think, at least 19 medications. But, you know, the, the ones that I was on for extended periods of time were uh, Lamictal, Lexapro, and this isn't necessarily at the same time, but these were the medications that I took for years. Uh, Lamictal, Lexapro, uh, Lithium, Abilify, Effexor, Clonopin, Ativan, Prozac. I was on Prozac for quite a long time. They basically tested out tons of different meds, but they never would take them. Like usually it would be, if this isn't working, let's add another or increase the dosage Like, because it must not be enough. That was always kind of the motto um, or it was always the mentality. But I guess I should say, you know, the medication regimen I was on in 2010, when I began to taper off was lithium, lamictal, Effexor, Ativan, Abilify, and I had a PRN of Seroquel. So that's, that was what I was on at the end. 
So you were on 19 different medications over the more than 10 years you were on psych drugs. And at the end, they had you on a mood stabilizer, an antidepressant, an anti-anxiety drug, and sounds like two antipsychotics. Yep. I always had this impression that the more medications there were, the more quote-unquote sophisticated the med regimen was. You know, I just, I remember almost, it sounds so kind of perverse to say it, but I was kind of proud. Like, they were taking a lot of time to really get things right. This was a very sophisticated regimen with very modern drugs. You know, now when I look back on how I had a little pill bag, a little dop kit of pills that I brought with me everywhere I went. It was like they were like my security blanket. I mean, I didn't go anywhere. I, I didn't go anywhere without my medications. Well, this is really important because this is part of one of the things that I think happens to a lot of people is that you get an extraordinary amount of attention in, in a way that feels like sophisticated, scientific, authoritative expertise to help fix you and help get your chemistry back to some kind of normal balanced state and that that can be a really really powerful thing especially for a young person to feel like they're getting that kind of attention in, in, a, in a way to support definitely it basically made me feel like I was an important person you know I always think about how and I wrote a piece about this a while back for the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care and, and actually, it's funny because I didn't even realize that Judy Chamberlain had written, had used the same phrase. I had never, I hadn't read her piece, but I wrote a patient, a uh, uh, piece called Becoming the Good Patient because it gave my life meaning. It was the only meaning I had in my life was being a psychiatric patient, was being bipolar. And so I worked really hard at being good at it, at, you know, at really staying on top of my symptoms and you know, letting my doctor know if... You know, my, my thoughts are moving a little faster today. Maybe I'm a little hypomanic. Let's, should we check in on the medications and see if we can adjust something? Like, I, it really made me feel important to be a part of, of the dialogue, of, like the, of the medical dialogue. It's also a kind, of, it's a kind of caretaking, too. It's like, I imagine you felt very cared for. I put all my trust in psychiatry. So in that sense, I definitely, you know, I saw myself as being taken care of. I guess I just never, I never actually felt like a, a sense of calm, a sense of ease, a sense of peace that you'd feel when someone helps take care of you. I never f had those feelings, although I did believe they were taking care of me. It just it hadn't happened yet. You know, the result, I hadn't seen the results yet. And you're also describing something common, which is that the prescriptions and the appointments with the doctor also give you a sense that you're being taken seriously, that your suffering is actually real, and it's, it's being taken seriously. It's this human need to have an answer and to have and that in order for something to be val I shouldn't say a human thing maybe it's it's a western society thing or a modern society thing I don't know what type of thing but just this belief that something is only valid and legitimate if you can define it and label it and categorize it and have a definition of it you know just that we need we need words at all we need labels at all to to explain what we're going through I think that is at the root of all of this because the way I see myself today is, you know, I, I don't need an answer to why I feel certain things other than because I'm human. And, and so tell us about what the experience was of being on those medications, because it sounds like, I mean, some people may have feel helped, feel supported, and feel like they're really getting some benefit from the medications, but you said it just fueled this downward spiral into darker and darker places. What was it like to be on those medications for 10 years? Knowing 
how I feel today and, and feeling so connected to myself today, it makes me sad for myself. Although I'm at total, I'm totally at peace with, with my past, but I was so profoundly disconnected from myself and in, in every aspect, like in an emotional way, in an existential way, in a physical way. I really felt like I was playing a part in my life. Like I, I was acting, I was performing, nothing felt genuine. Now also that, that I'm getting healthier as the withdrawal, as you know, I'm moving through the withdrawal today, I and my body's getting healthier, I look back now and just see how much of a physical toll my body took from these medications. I, I had a lot of weight gain, you know, acne, my thyroid stopped functioning from the lithium, so now I have hypothyroidism, I have thyroid disease, I had sexual dysfunction, I was cognitively, I had a hard time concentrating, my memory, I had memory issues, there was just so much going on and, and I didn't even realize it because it had become my normal, like I didn't even realize that it wasn't normal to have chronic gastrointestinal issues, which were another another physical side effect, just, I always had stomach pain and cramps and bloating and I just figured it was psychosomatic, you know, I was stressing myself out, and it's like I see now, it, w it wasn't that, it was that my body, my metabolism was being altered by these medications, but I think the most important effect that these drugs had on me was definitely in the existential realm. I saw myself basically as a slave to these medications. They were in control, and I had no agency in my life, and, you know, I never knew if it was me or my meds. Like I ask myself that question all the time, is it me or my meds? Like when I'd feel a feeling or think a thought, you know, is it my medications making me feel this feeling or is it my feeling? Do I have any genuine feelings? You know, I just, I was constantly baffled by myself. And that was, it was really hard to live that way because living life was exhausting, like going out into the world and talking to people and interacting. It felt like a performance. Like I had to get myself motivated enough to like get out of bed in the morning and shower and change and like go be Laura Delano at, at school like I or at work or wherever I was and it, it was so exhausting and all the time the doctors are saying well you need to take these medications because of these different symptoms that you're having and were the medications actually helping with those <laughs> symptoms definitely not um, no not at all and and looking back now I, I really believe that they were perpetuating the symptoms. For example, it was my junior fall of college. I was on, I think I was on Zyprexa, which I didn't stay on for very long, luckily. I was on a very high dosage of Prozac. I was on 80 milligrams of Prozac. And I was on an anti-narcoleptic medication called Provigil because I couldn't stay awake during the day. I was on 400 milligrams of that, which is just a massive amount. And basically, so basically I was taking intense dosages of speed. So I was quote unquote manic all the time during the day, you know, racing thoughts, inability to sit still. I was feeling really quote unquote grandiose. Uh, I just had all those quote unquote symptoms. And then of course at night I had such bad insomnia that I'd be on 10 milligrams of a sleeping pill. So, and I, I, that of course helped, would bring me down so much and I'd, I'd feel like very depressed too. So they called me, you know, a rapid cycler, quote unquote rapid cycler, because I was always kind of manic and depressed, going very intensely through these intense highs, intense lows, 
And I really like, I mean, I was on an anti-narcoleptic medication and a sleeping medication at the same time, basically. Like what? <laughs> you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. But it did at the time. It made sense to me at the time, which which is, I think, of course it did because I trusted my doctors. I, I believed that they were doing what was medically sound. Mm-hmm. And I think this is this relates to something we talk a lot about in the work around medication empowerment and helping people come off medications that really the measure of a medication's usefulness is whether it's useful to you in your life relative to the side effects, not you have a disease, you need to be on this medication, but what, let's look pragmatically, and it sounds like there was very little evidence going on at the time that these medications were helpful to you at all other than this idea, this belief in, okay, you've got this disease, therefore you've got to get on the right medications. You know, what I heard a lot was that I was medication resistant, you know, that that all of those, it was me all along. It was something wrong inside of me that was just so strong and so powerful that even these medications couldn't make it better. That, that's how I, how I saw it. And so we have to try more medications and ultimately get you on five, six, seven meds at a time. Exactly. And, and I, you know, another thing in terms of weighing the costs and benefits, I remember back when my thyroid stopped functioning, it happened in two months, um, the t- two months after I went on the lithium. It was fine. My levels were fine uh, before I started the lithium. And two months later, I got a phone call from my primary care doctor who said she'd never seen TSH levels like what I had. And, and I remember talking about it with, with the psychiatrist, and, and they said to me, you should feel grateful that, that you have Hashimoto's disease, this, this thyroid disease, because out of all of the autoimmune diseases, it is the most manageable. It is so easy to, to get it right with medication. So you should actually feel grateful. And, and I actually remember feeling guilty for being so angry that my thyroid had stopped working. I remember feeling, oh my God, who am I to be angry? I, sh- I should be grateful. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio, and our guest is Laura Delano. She's a psychiatric survivor who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at age 14. She's a blogger on madinamerica.com, and she's been medication-free for almost two years, and we're speaking about coming off psychiatric drugs. And Laura, what, what did they tell you were the risks of these medications that, that you were given? You know, I heard a lot about, you know, you might have headaches, you might have a little bit of trouble getting to sleep, you might have a little bit of constipation, but these usually smooth out in a few weeks as your body adjusts. Oh, I did hear about weight gain for Giodon and Zyprexa and Mm -hmm. those medications, but I remember always feeling like the potential side effects would settle down in, in a few weeks. Like I just, I remember always thinking that it would be okay, you know, I might feel it a little bit in the beginning, but my, my body's going to acclimate and, and then it'll be okay. So they really minimize the severity of the risks that you were undertaking by being on these meds long term. They definitely didn't have an open, candid conversation with me about all all of the potential potentially permanent side effects. They didn't at all. And and I also think though that I was in a place where I felt so broken and I felt so insecure and I I felt like I'd lost my voice. I kind of was like, who am I to even question? what this doctor is telling me. Who am I to think that I know better than this doctor? So so I think that's part of the problem is that there's such a, a power differential. It makes you feel like you're being an annoying, problematic person if, if you ask more questions or challenge or push back. 
And what about the uh, suicidal feelings? Because that's something I know that patients are told quite frequently that, look, this is a disease. It's life-threatening. You could kill yourself. You better be on these medications, even if they have some some unpleasant side effects. How did it affect your suicidal feelings? And what do you make of that claim that, you know, bipolar is so serious that, you know, people need to be on the medications or else they're at risk for suicide? I mean, I definitely bought that belief hook, line, and sinker during all of those years because I, I was chronically suicidal throughout my 20s and I did have a very serious suicide attempt in November of 2008 um, where it had become such a big part of my life was thinking about death and all along I took that as a symptom of my bipolar of just how severe my bipolar was. In, in the weeks leading up to my suicide attempt I was on, let's see, I had recently been on 400 milligrams of lamictal, which had given me akathisia. You know, that for people who don't know what that is, it's kind of uncontrolled motor. Like my arms were were kind of jittering uh, and shaking, and I felt this like very intense um, energy like vibrating through me. So they had recently decreased me back down to 200 milligrams of lamictal, and then I was on. Uh, 30 milligrams of Lexapro, which is a very high dosage of Lexapro, which is an antidepressant. Most people take 10 or 20 milligrams. I was on 30. And I was on 3 milligrams of Clonopin. Um, and in the time period leading up to my suicide attempt, I was incredibly, quote-unquote, manic. I, I just, I wasn't really, the only way I slept was by taking the Clonopin. And also by that time in my life, I was drinking very heavily because the medications for all those years never seemed to work. Um, but, you know, during the day, I was, I felt, and I, I felt very manic. That's how I thought about it then. And it really got to a point where I saw no other option than to take my life. Like, I really, it was, it, it had overtaken me. And, um, you know, I, I'm obviously here now and I'm just so, grateful that I'm here because now that it's given me such a sense of um, peace knowing that that might not have been me that wanted to die. It wasn't me. Not that it might. That was not me that wanted to die. That was medicated me. Laura, how did you start to pull yourself away from the beliefs that you were told about bipolar and needing medication? How did you transition to uh, coming off meds? Well, in, fe in February of 2010, I, I hit, it's how I think about it for myself, I hit rock bottom. I was right back at the place of, of wanting to die and of feeling like I didn't have, of not feeling safe with myself. Something kind of came over me and I reached out for help from my, my parents who were away. I'd gone down to Connecticut where I grew up and they were away, but I had called them on the phone. Uh, my dad said, you know, go straight to the hospital, and I, I went to the hospital, and through a series of events, I found myself on a psychiatric unit at a private hospital up in Belmont, Massachusetts, and I had no idea at that time, you know, what was up and what was down and what was left and what was right. I just, I knew I didn't want to die, and I knew that the way I was going, I would die and I just, I needed something to change, but I had no idea what. And it ended up starting with me realizing that I needed to get sober from alcohol. The last four years of my life 
up until that time, had alcohol had really become a daily part of my life. And so getting sober gave me a little bit of mental clarity. You know, I still felt really dark inside, but, but my life began to feel a little bit more manageable on the outside, and I kind of started to feel a little bit of a momentum. And I just started to think as my mind got a little bit clearer, like, who who are you off of all of these drugs you're on, off of these five medications that you take every day? And I just started to get curious about it. And I was doing an intensive outpatient program for borderline personality disorder, which I picked up. Um, I, I picked up that diagnosis in the later years. So I was going to this hospital every day for treatment. And I started to ask my psychopharmacologist, can I try coming off of these medications? I, I really, I really want to see who I am off of these. And I just, he pushed back in the beginning, but eventually what ended up happening was that they all met, my treatment team met and determined that maybe, maybe the way they said it was that I had been misdiagnosed with bipolar disorder. They couldn't acknowledge because, and I didn't even know at the time about mental health recovery either, but they couldn't acknowledge that maybe I'd, they, they basically said, maybe you've been misdiagnosed. You definitely have borderline personality disorder and you're definitely an alcoholic, but maybe, maybe you were misdiagnosed. So we're willing to bring you off of the bipolar medications, but you need to stay on Lamictal because that helps for borderline. At that point, I was kind of like, well, screw you, going to come off of Lamictal too. I didn't tell them that. I did it covertly, but over the next five months, I tapered off of those medications. And now, I had no idea at the time that the DSM was not a valid medical textbook. I had no idea that the drugs I'd been taking, you know, I had not yet found anatomy of an epidemic because it actually hadn't come out yet. But so, so really, I had no idea what I was doing. I just knew that I had this urge to find out who I was off of drugs, off of psychiatric drugs. Do you think that being involved with re recovery from alcohol really got you thinking about the connections between the psychiatric medications and the alcohol that you had been consuming? I mean, I, I definitely realized that, that I had really been damaging my body. I, I, to be honest, I don't know how I don't have permanent physical damage today from, from the way I did mix alcohol with all those medications. But it, yeah, I mean, it did get me... It, it got me thinking. Like I saw how much I was changing from getting sober that it, it gave me a sense of agency. And I was finally kind of realizing that I wanted to be alive and I wanted to have a life for myself and, and I wanted to know who I was in that life. Um, and, you know, the most beautiful moment in all of this, this time was actually when I found anatomy of an epidemic, which I accidentally stumbled upon at, in a bookstore in May of 2010. A couple, I think I'd started tapering off, I want to say in like end of March of, of 2010. And I found Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of an Epidemic, sitting on a bookshelf. And I, I remember looking at the cover with that human head that where the, the head's broken down into all these little sections, each with the name of a psychiatric drug inside. And I had been on like all of those, every single drug other than Risperdal and I think one other one, I'd been on all of them. I was like, what is this book? And I recognized his name because I'd read Mad America from my thesis research in college. Um, and I, I picked the book up and I read it that day. I couldn't put it down. 
and literally it was the first moment it, it was like my aha moment where it's hard to even put into words how amazing it was it was simultaneously so scary I was kind of in denial about it I was confused I was really sad I was really angry I was really angry but I also was really excited because I now saw that these medications that I had been taking for treatment might have actually been making me sicker all along and that was all I needed to just con continue on with with the withdrawal process with the tapering process because it was really hard to come off I was yeah it was not an easy thing. Yeah, tell us about that because you you said at the end you were on five different uh, medications: mood stabilizer, SSRI, antidepressant, antipsychotics. How did you how did you do that? How did you how did you come off your medications? I came off of the Ativan first, which is a benzodiazepine, and benzodiazepine withdrawal is really horrendous. I had come off of clonopin back after my suicide attempt. This is kind of going away from the question you just asked, but for those of you out there who are struggling with, who might be struggling with benzo withdrawal, I don't think there's anything worse. The physical, emotional, and mental effects from that are really intense. Yeah, the benzodiazepines are actually more addictive than heroin and can be more dangerous to come off than heroin. A lot of people don't know that. That's Ativan, Valium, uh, Clonopin, Xanax. That was a really horrendous experience. When I was coming off of benzos, I had absolutely no balance. Like I, I couldn't, I had no equilibrium. I felt like I had vertigo all the time. My head, the headaches, the migraines were so intense that I just, I wanted to like rip my head open. It was so horrible. I had the cold sweats. It was really, it was hell on earth. Uh, it was horrible. Um, luckily, you know, when I was tapering off of the Ativan, I'd only been on the Ativan a couple of years. So the really intense benzo withdrawal I had had been from Clonopin a few years earlier. So the Ativan withdrawal in uh, 2010 was, you know, it was really, it was hard, but it wasn't as hard as the Clonopin withdrawal had been. But yeah, we started with the Ativan. I think we moved to the Abilify next. So I tapered off of all of these drugs over five months. Um, that's about the length of time that, that I did it in. And the lithium was what we tapered me down off of the slowest. We did that over the full five months. The others were over kind of, you know, a couple months each, I'd say. I did not even understand during this time period just how debilitating the withdrawal was for me because I was newly sober too. So I had kind of attributed it to just early recovery from alcohol and uh, but it <laughs> when I look back now I mean basically in it the initial acute withdrawal for me looked like you know a lot of migraines light sensitivity I was so profoundly exhausted all the time it was so hard to get out of my bed I had very strange smells coming out of like this my skin that I mean, I see now there were toxins of some sort, but I had horrendous acne break out all over my my face, my neck, my chest, my back in a way that I'd never experienced before. I felt profoundly depressed, and even more than depressed was intense, intense, debilitating anxiety. I mean, the anxiety was beyond anything I'd ever experienced in my life. It was like physical agitation that was so bad I wanted to rip my skin off and it was also just mentally I 
everything, anything and everything just riddled me with anxiety and, and racing thoughts and just, I, I felt like I never had a moment of peace. And of course, sleeping, you know, I had been on sleep, some sort of sleep medication for 10 years. And that was hands down the thing I was most scared about. I really believed that I would never be able to sleep on my own again. Like I, I really believed that I, I needed either something like Ambien or a benzodiazepine or Seroquel to sleep. The first few months, I didn't sleep well. I, I at night, you know, during the day, I was tired all the time. But at night, my mind was going, going, going. And I really turned a lot to watching hours of kind of mindless television to just distract me from my thoughts because I couldn't, I couldn't sleep at night. It sounds like you did have the support and guidance of um, your prescriber in this process. But what was it that, that helped you to make it through this horrendous withdrawal um, scene that you were in? I mean, were the, was the prescriber helpful with that? How, how was it that you made it through? I definitely wouldn't say that the prescriber was supportive emotionally for me. It was really more just he agreed to do it and he he was kind of, it, it was supportive in the sense that I knew I had a doctor supervising me, but I didn't turn to him for emotional support. I really leaned into the community of people I'd found in, in getting sober. And, you know, not I didn't have anyone who had been through psychiatric drug with withdrawal specifically, so I didn't have anyone to guide me, to let me know what I might anticipate, what it might look like, how long it might take. But I did have people who were dealing with their own emotional and physical pain, you know, a different type of pain. But at the end of the day, it's the same feelings of anxiety, fear, sadness, anger. I surrounded myself with people who were learning how to live with their feelings and not be isolated and not be shut off. And so I, I really believe for me, I, I don't think I could have done it if I didn't have that type of community. I do have to say as well that my family was so supportive. I was living with my aunt and uncle up here in the Boston area for the almost a year as I was coming off of the psychiatric drugs. And I was very lucky that I was able to not have to worry about paying rent and I was going to this psychiatric hospital during the day for for treatment so I didn't have a job I didn't I didn't you know I didn't have children I wasn't married so I really was very lucky in just having family to kind of take care of me and structure during the day but that that didn't I didn't really have many responsibilities you were severely sick it sounds like from the withdrawal yeah, I, I, I was. And I just I didn't even realize how sick I was until I've started to get well because be, I, because really my, my, I just gotten so used to feeling pain, like physical pain, emotional pain for so long that it really I really didn't even notice that it's what I was. I mean, of course, I did notice, but I didn't even I didn't realize how bad it was until I actually started to heal. And Laura, how long did it take from when you started the withdrawal process to when you actually started to make a turnaround and started to feel better? I would say that the first two to three months were, it was hard to get out of the house. It was really painful and intense. And, and so in that time, things got kept, you know, getting worse. In the first six to eight months, though, at about eight months, I actually started to feel better, you know, a little bit of a shift towards the the positive. You know, I, I felt a little 
lighter, a little less anxious, a little more motivated, more energy. And, you know, I'm a, I'm almost two years into the withdrawal now. And I would, I would definitely say that it's really been in the last six months about, so I'd say about a year and a half in that I've actually started to feel good. I actually feel like I'm physically almost healed. I feel like I have a very healthy relationship to my emotions today. I do experience peace of mind on a pretty regular basis. So for me, it's been about at about a year and a half was when I actually started to to feel good again. But but at six to eight months was when I started to notice a positive shift. Mm -hmm. So especially with the long term benzodiazepine addiction to be prepared for many months of potential pretty serious withdrawal process. And what are some of the other kinds of advice that you think is important to really give people? I mean, you, you had the support of, uh, of a doctor. And what if, what if people don't have the support of a doctor, for example, and they just know that something's wrong with being on the medications? Informing yourself about the fact that while it is really helpful to have a doctor's support, it is not vital that you have doctor supervision to successfully come off of psychiatric drugs. You know, the MIND study uh, over in the UK that was done in the last few years says that a person is as likely to succeed in, in coming off psychiatric drugs without a doctor's supervision as, as they are with. I think what's, what I say over and over to people is that if you are in the middle of intense withdrawal and, and you're full of pain of all types, emotional pain, physical pain, mental pain, it really helped me to view that pain as a sign of my body healing like my body is my body and my mind were working so hard to heal themselves and the pain was you know evidence of that and that helped me find meaning in the experience and it helped it helped me feel like I could keep going because when I had moments of doubt just like I don't know if I can do this I, I don't know if I can handle this like I think what if I have to go back on the medications I would remind myself that it was just, it was so important to me to find out who I was off of these drugs that I'd been on for over 10 years. You know, so just like really looking forward to, to that point ahead of actually looking in the mirror and knowing who I was and reminding myself that, that, that the pain is a sign that I'm healing. It might not make sense um, to some people, but that's how I see it. And, and that's what I always suggest to people. Laura, if someone is listening to this interview now and, and they themselves are taking psychiatric medications and they're really starting to get curious, like, wow, maybe this is, this is something I want to start exploring, what would be the first step for them in, in terms of approaching the whole question of reducing and coming off medications? I, I definitely think uh, knowledge and, and accurate information is really important because so much of the knowledge that we're given by psychiatry, by the pharmaceutical industry, like, is, is not the actual capital T truth. So, you know, getting yourself informed, picking up books like Robert Whitaker's Anatomy of an Epidemic, uh, Joanna Moncrief's The Myth of the Chemical Cure, and, you know, a great, actually a great resource to turn to for support around the actual withdrawal process and also for getting access to this type of knowledge and information is the Harm Reduction Guide to Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs, written by Will Hall, put together by the Icarus Project. That is a really helpful piece of information that has tons of websites, books, important facts, because it's, not, it's for me, I, I, 
I went through for the first few months without having any idea of what was happening. And it was really scary. And once I could educate myself on what was happening, it made it much more bearable. And I think also remembering to, you know, I don't think there's a right or wrong way to come off of psychiatric drugs. You know, I don't think there's like one timeline, you know, one way to do it, one way to taper. But I think not acting in like in an, you know, a quick impulsive way, because, you know, some people do stop drugs cold turkey. But I think there's a lot of evidence that says that stopping drugs cold turkey can really cause much more severe issues, um, which might set you back even further. So just really kind of not rushing into anything, but taking taking some time to really like think about how you want to do it and who you want to support you. Like who do you trust? Who who knows you well? Who can you turn to in times of of intense? Um, emotional distress who, who's going to be there for you like arming yourself with as if you do have access to that support yeah the harm reduction guide to coming off psychiatric drugs uh, published by the Icarus Project and in Freedom Center is actually coming out in this second edition now so it's available in a, a revised and updated second edition Laura I want to really thank you for joining us on uh, Madness Radio why don't you give us information on how people can get in touch with you and also about your blog and if they want to find out more uh, more information. Um, yeah, well, I just want to say how honored I am to be here, Will. Thank you so much for having me on. And um, if you want to contact me, you can find me at madinamerica.com. I'm, I'm listed under the bloggers. And my email address is, is there if you want to shoot me an email. I'd, I'd be more than happy to communicate with anyone who has any questions or who wants to hear more um, or to direct you in, you know, the right the right direction. And... And I wish you all out there thinking about this, you know, the best of luck. And I, I have faith in you because it is possible, you know, it, it is possible to, to come off psychiatric drugs successfully. Laura Delano, thank you for joining us on Madness Radio. Thank you, Will. You've been listening to an interview with Laura Delano. She's a psychiatric survivor and activist diagnosed with bipolar at age 14 who was taking psychiatric medications for more than 10 years and has now been completely medication-free for two years. She's a peer specialist worker in a mental health agency in Massachusetts and a blogger on madinamerica.com. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Madness Radio is co-sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Hosted by Will Hall, music producer is John Rice, with technical assistance from Jeremy Lansman. Listen to our internet stream, podcasts, and show archives at madnessradio.net. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network, including KBOO in Oregon, WXOJ and WBCR in Massachusetts, Alaska's KWMD, and WPRR in Michigan. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, to help get us broadcast on a station near you, or if you just want to share what's in your head, contact radio at madnessradio.net.